He is risen. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. Um, just to be honest, uh, this is probably like the hardest day for me to prepare uh, a message for compared to like any other Sunday. Um, I've heard some people call it like it's the Super Bowl of like church days. <laughs> you know, it's just like the big one, like kind of that happens every year. It's uh, one of the two days that traditionally more people come to church, you know, Christmas and Easter and, you know, kind of get those days out of the way. Um, and then when you really, really think of it, like Easter, the, the death of Christ and then the resurrection and then him walking for those 30-some days with his disciples, and then them going on to write the New Testament. Like, like, like this day that we're coming to acknowledge and worship is really the foundation for every sermon you've ever heard. Right? So, so how then do you pick what to say on actual Resurrection Sunday? On Easter Sunday? And, and it's something that I've been through this strange journey this week. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, I, earlier, you know, a number of days ago, I had a message all done, and I was like, okay, I can breathe, I can rest. <laughs> like, the message is done for Easter. Normally, it's super hard for me to figure it out. I've got it now, and, and I was able to, to come on Thursday night when we had our, our dinner here, and then Friday night, and then went with the men on the hike yesterday, which is great, all thinking like, all right, I've got this message. And I woke up this morning um, and started thinking uh, about Easter and, and like, what, it, what does it mean? And, and as I'm like thinking through it, and there's these questions like coming up into my mind that I was like, well, I don't know if I, I'm supposed to do the message that I had before. And, and so I actually have like two different messages literally sitting in front of me right now. And because I printed it up, I'm like, okay, at least I can like pick and choose between the two. Uh, and then on my way here, I'm just kind of praying and saying, okay, God, like which one, A or B? <laughs> just give me some clear direction so that I can rest. Like which one am I supposed to do? And, and I'm walking through and on my way here, there's a park. And uh, I'm walking through the park and the sense that I'm kind of getting is that it's, it's not necessarily going to be either message. Maybe it'll be some of both. Uh, maybe it'll be something else. Um, and, and as I'm praying, I, I see like these little colored ovals on the ground in a park. And I was like, oh, like somebody had an Easter egg hunt and, and they left some. And so it's like kind of hungry, you know. <laughs> and, and here's like this little group of like five or six eggs that somehow a kid missed. And I don't know how they missed them because they're like clearly out in the open. And, and so I was like, I could probably take them. And so I was like looking around. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, Jefferson Park. So it's like in the middle of like this big block of houses. And, and so I'm like looking around. Is anybody on their porch? Are there any kids like at a starting line, like waiting to go? And here I am in the middle of the field being like, ah. I didn't see anybody. But as I looked around, I saw like another clump and another group and another group and, and then a sign that said egg hunt and so I'm like realizing like oh this is something that's, that's going to happen today so maybe I shouldn't take any 
And, and so I started to, to walk on, and I got maybe about a block and a half away, and um, realized I've never done like an Easter egg hunt in my life. Like I've taken my daughter to one, but growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, like it was never something that, that I'd ever experienced before. And, and so I walked back a block and a half <laughs> as like the creepy guy. <laughs> and I went and uh, I, took, I took an egg. <laughs> I don't even know what's in this, right? And uh, maybe we'll find out later or maybe it'll be like one of those movies where it'll be sitting here the whole time and we never know what's inside of it. Uh, we'll see. But, so now I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm praying and I'm like, God, what's the message going to be? Like, I got an Easter egg now, which is kind of cool. And I, I felt like he said that this was supposed to represent the message. An egg. And, and I'm just like, okay, like, we always have this tension with our Christian holidays that we cherish and love so much, and then the commercialization of them, right? Like you have Christmas, and it's all about gifts. You have Easter, and somehow it's all about candy. And, and when I used to work for Target for like 10 years, um, Easter almost outsold Halloween sometimes because of candy, right? And so I'm like, how is this? I'm, and I'm assuming there's candy here, unless this is like the golden ticket egg, you know, where you get like a xbox or something like i don't know maybe there's money but what does this have to do and and as i'm considering it and thinking about it and and realizing like what does an egg represent represents new life right like like in reality not this plastic thing with a seam on it and unknown contents but but really in god's design god's purpose an egg represents new life. There, there's something within that's meant to come out. Something that's, that's different, that's new. I mean, it's completely different than the eggs that we crack open on our skillets, right? And you got this little pool of white with this golden globe of deliciousness in the middle of it. Right? Like, like that's not a fully formed egg. But, but what it is is life. Something new that's coming out of it. And, and so we're going to get to that today. And that concept of, of what the new life means. Uh, but I think before we get into new life, we also have to consider death. Right? I mean, it's one of the constants in our world. is death. And, and it was even thinking about this morning how much our lives depend on death, right? Like I was thinking, like all of us, you know, we're all going to experience death and sorrow at some point, right? Uh, and so we've had grandparents that have passed away, maybe friends that have passed away, family members, you know, maybe it was some natural causes or maybe it was an accident or maybe it was with COVID over the past couple of years. There's so many sources of, of death. And I was like, well, you know, infants, they, they're really not, that cognizant of what death is but then the thought struck me like like even they depend on death in order to live the, the food that we eat dies right i had some hamburger last night 
An animal had to die for that, for, for my nourishment. And then you might have an argument from a, a vegetarian or a vegan, like, this is why we don't kill animals, because of death. What happens when you cut a broccoli stem off the ground? It dies, right? It decays. Like, you have to eat it quick enough, or it just literally rots, because it's dead. And, and so our whole life... I believe God is really designed to be dependent on death, which is a really weird concept when you think of it. Like, we're able to bring nourishment into our bodies and sustain our life and be able to do activities because something died in order to give us the ability to live. I believe in God's great purpose that was always meant to be a reflection of what Jesus Christ did for us that we truly can't live without his death. That, that without him coming and dying at the cross, there would be no new life. There, there would be no potential of life. But rather, just this sense of going through the motions in a, in a shallow shadow of what true life is, of, of what this actually represents in a new life. Jesus promised an abundant life. And so it's dependent upon death. Now, this morning we did something in taking of communion uh, that represented Jesus' death, right? His, his body in the bread and his blood uh, in the wine or the juice this morning. He said to do this in remembrance of him. It's, even that whole concept is we eat a representation of death, signifying we're dependent upon this for actual life. That's what Easter's all about. God so loved the world that he sent his only son in order to be a sacrifice for us. What does that even mean? It, it, Adam and Eve sinned, and through that sin, it came into the world. We all inherited it. We, we grow up with it. We can see the effects of it running rampant throughout our world. We only have to pick up a newspaper or click on our computer screens or look at the news. Or we just feel our back when we get out of bed in the morning. And we know that there's suffering. We know that there's pain. We know that there's decay. We just look at our food and we see that there's decay. And so there's this whole cycle of, of sin and death that has been happening since Adam and Eve. And we just look throughout history at, at mankind's every attempt for peace. Every uh, attempt in order to, to make this world a, a peaceful place where we can all get along and, and be friends. Right? And despite those things, then we have... World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Middle East, Ukraine, and, and I know there's a whole lot more that I'm not listing. <laughs> no matter what mankind has tried to do, despite his best attempts, it ends up in, in death. It ends up in conflict. In fact, uh, uh, last weekend we were discussing this. And the whole example that Jesus had set 
uh, was that we find peace kind of through living through him, that, that his example was our example, that, that considering himself to be equal with God, uh, but not something to be grasped at, came down in the humble form of a servant in order to die for us, uh, in order to pay for our sins. Like, like he did that willingly and selfishly in love. And, and then we compared that with James chapter 4 that says, why do you quarrel amongst yourselves? Why are there fights? Why are there wars? Is it not because of your desires? Is it not because of your passions within you? You desire and do not have, so you, you covet, you murder, and you steal. That is the result right there of why we see wars. That's the result of, of sin in this world. Russia wants more land, so it goes. And if it's not that, it's another thing. And it's not just on a global scale. It's, it's within our own lives. It's within our marriages. I want her to respect me this way. She needs to do this percentage of chores. And if I hold to that in a selfish sense out of James chapter 4, it creates conflict because I'm desiring something and I don't have it, so I covet it and I don't get it, so it upsets me. Same with friendships. Same with jobs. Like, I deserve this respect at my job. Like, like, there's so many different things that we're passionate about but really selfish about, which is what creates all this conflict. But the answer to it, again, was Jesus Christ in Philippians um, chapter 2, where it says, have, your, this, uh, have this mindset amongst yourselves. Consider others' needs as greater as your own. Have your example in Jesus Christ, who emptied himself and came to a cross. Dying even as a criminal. I guess the one thing we have to remember is like this cross has become like a symbol of Christianity, um, but it was a method of execution. I, I mean, it's kind of strange, right? Like if Jesus had died in an electric chair, would we have that up here on the wall? Or lethal injection? Or sword? Literally, this was the method of execution as a criminal. And it said that he willingly did that. In actuality, for the joy set before him, he endured dying like a criminal. That's a crazy thought to me. Right? Like, like who walks towards execution with joy in their heart? I think that'd be a hard thing to do. Just this last week, um, me and a couple of people were, were experimenting on something that we want to bring forward um, next year. It's called the Jesus Honor Walk. And uh, essentially what you do uh, is you put about 115 pounds on your back, which is what they estimate uh, the weight of the cross beam of the cross is. And then you carry that for 600 meters which is about the distance they assume that Jesus walked to the cross. I lifted it up onto my back, and uh, 115 pounds, like, that first five seconds, like, yeah, okay, this is heavy. I can kind of do this. And then we start out on the walk. And, and the way we had it set up, um, we were along some woods and we're walking in the grass and, you know, kind of get around uh, that first circle, which is about 200 meters, and we get around that first one and I'm like, this is getting tough. 
And, and the way that it's set up, because it's on your back, like it's kind of pressing down on that bone at the top of your neck. And, and then your hands are kind of like holding the bar. And, and so like your wrists are just kind of like really getting pushed down. And so I'm carrying it, and I get about halfway around that next one. And I'm like, I don't know, like, can I finish this? And, and the more that I went the more pain that I started feeling in my wrists. And it felt like my hands were starting to go numb. And, and in a moment there, I was like, well, you know, I could just set this down. But yet, this is what Jesus went through. You know, in, in the account, like, he eventually couldn't do it. And so somebody had to help him. But in that moment, and carrying it, and feel the pain in my arms, realizing this was probably some of the same pain that he was experiencing. And then remembering that, that he's also doing it after he was whipped with a crown of thorns on his head. And so sitting there and carrying that, that weight and that pain step after step and then beginning to imagine and envision this blood would be coming down maybe into his eyes, but yet he couldn't wipe it away because he's carrying this heavy burden. And I got around to that second lap and I started the third and it just everything was hurting. And I started envisioning him being in the same pain and walking through the crowd and people jeering, maybe throwing things at him, spitting on him, the Pharisees cursing at him, imagining him walking past his mom. You know, it was just kind of a scene from the passion that was kind of thrown in there, but, but envisioning this. And then in my head saying, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. In other words, what would the cross accomplish? Because up until that point in time, up to the point where Jesus dies on the cross, there is a, a gulf of separation between man and God, between human beings and God. That is sin. That is death. The only thing is for that to be wiped away. But because of our imperfect nature and our proclivity to always mess things up or to do it for selfish reasons, we can never atone for our mistakes. We can never atone for our sins. We can never do it within our own strength. And Jesus knew this. And so therefore, the joy for him was being, I can do what they won't be able to. I can do this for them so that we can be reconciled. As we were talking about communion earlier, even that sense where he says, in one of the Gospels, and he's instituting communion, he's like, I tell you, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the cup again until you drink it with me in the kingdom. And so I'm like envisioning as Jesus is sitting there, you know, holding this crossbeam and, and walking and this pain, this joy of this is what this is going to accomplish. And there's going to be a great celebration. What then is this temporary pain but a cost that he's willing to pay? And then as I was continuing to walk and meditating on this idea of, of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, including the weight carrying it, not just up there dying. And I was struck with a thought. That for the joy set before him, 
meant that he thought about me. That he thought about you. It's a strange thought, right? Like, like here I am, Joshua, 2022, like 2,000 years after this actually happened. But the concept that, that he thought about me specifically, I immediately wanted to throw it out of my mind, right? Like, that's strange. That's odd. Except then all these scriptures started flooding into my head where David sings that, that before, you know, even when he was within his mother's womb, that God knit him together. The passage in Matthew where it talks about how God knows how many hairs are on my head, how many hairs are on your head. That he has all of the stars named. That he knew me before the foundation of the world. And because God is God, it is not an impossibility for him in that moment as he walked to the cross to think about you specifically and to say this is worth it with joy that thought struck me as i was finishing the last half of that last loop and i finally got to the point where i was able to cast the weights down and and that thought i i i, I ugly cried <laughs> on the ground Because I truly believe it. He thought about you specifically. And said, I'm doing this for you. Willingly. In love. For you. Willing to pay that ultimate price to do something that you could never do within your own strength. In order to give you this. In order to give you new life. It's not just the forgiveness of sins that was accomplished with his death on the cross. That was the sacrifice that was paid in atonement for our, for our sins, for our separation. That was what he meant when it is finished, when he declared that on the cross. It is, it is done. The price has now been paid. And for any who come to him, confessing him as Lord, we find salvation. Now again, that concept is something that we really have to kind of think of what it means to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The, the passage in uh, Romans chapter 10, it talks about if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's one of our evangelistic verses that, that we put out there and, and we share. But, it, but it's more than just simply believing that Jesus exists. It's more than simply believing that, that Jesus died on the cross. And, and Scripture points to this uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, and this is probably one of those verses I didn't get in. Someone asks him in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Thank you, Cooper. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you have come from. And then you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
Matthew puts it another way, where many on that day will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we do this and, and do this? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. See, the, the, the confessing of Jesus Christ as Lord is more than just believing that he existed. It's more than just believing that he died on the cross. It's more than just believing that he rose from the grave again. It is the he is Lord that matters. He is Lord of my life. Meaning, I'm not. All of my desires, all of my passions, all of those things that I pursue, James tells me, will lead to conflict and strife. Selfishness. I have to die to all those things willingly, joyfully, even though it means suffering and working through those things, in order to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He, he directs my life. He guides my life. What's important to Him is important to me. The things He says, don't do, I am not going to do. That's what it means for Him to be Lord. And that's where this passage here in Luke, I think, is so profound when you really look at it because there's people sitting there saying, Lord, open up to us. They're calling him Lord. But he's saying, where are you coming from? Well, well we saw you. We, we ate and drank in your presence. But did you do it with him as Lord? Right? You taught in our streets. In other words, we've been around some things that you've been doing, so therefore we should get in. And Jesus' response is, I, I don't know you. I don't know where you're from. We don't have a relationship where you are a disciple and I am your Lord. We can listen to Christian music. We can listen to teaching about Jesus on days like today. We can celebrate Easter and Christmas believing that Jesus is real and that He died for mankind's sins. That's the same as eating and drinking in His presence and listening to the teaching. But unless we take that step where He is Lord and we die to ourselves and commit our whole lives to Him, there is not salvation. That there is not new life. We've heard about it. And we might be one of those people knocking on the door saying, I want in. I heard these things. But we never acted on them. We never transformed. Because again, it's, it's all about this. It's all about the new life. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why would he say that? We're forgiven because he died. All that does is wipe the slate clean. It puts us at a zero balance with God. But the resurrection, the resurrection where Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, this is him coming into this new life, ascending to heaven, opened the way for us to be adopted as children, Romans 8 says we're able to cry out, Abba, Father, because we're adopted as his children, as his sons and daughters, when we confess him as Lord and we submit to him as Lord. Not only are we forgiven, but then we are given a new life, 
a new heart, a new identity. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit of God Himself within us in order to guide and empower this new life. We're transformed into something new. And therefore, completely different than what we used to be. And we still live on this earth. There's still times that, that we struggle really with our identity. That's all it really is. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about being set free from the law of sin and death. Um, I'll just turn there. It'll take me a second to find that, but I, I don't want to gloss over what it says. Verse 12, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. In other words, if we continue to walk with the worldly mindset and pursuing after the selfish desires and, and our own kingdoms, it, it leads to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's Son. You do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. This is that miracle of new life, this gift given to us. That we no longer have to live according to the established humanity path. But rather we're something different. We can live according to a full kingdom of God and, and the entirety of reality of heaven. In fact, in our series, we're going through the book of John, and, and in just a couple of Sundays, we're going to get to the point where he says, uh, I tell you, I go ahead of you in order to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house, there's many rooms. Like, well, we're literally talking about eternity, which is a really strange concept for us as well, right? That we're going to live forever. You are going to exist forever. There's no doubt about it. This is the way that God has created you. You're going to live forever. Fact. What's it going to look like, though? Right? Will it be an eternity with Him or eternity separated from Him? Will it be eternity with Him as Lord or an eternity in rebellion, saying, I got this on my own? And again, rebellion doesn't even have to be like this act of fighting against God and saying, you know, I reject you, I hate you, I'm going to do the opposite, like all those things. Where's the spell book? But rebellion against God is just saying, um, I don't, you're not my king, right? Like we heard a lot of that, not my president, over the last two terms from both sides. That's all it takes to be in rebellion against the creator of the universe is just to say, not my God. And it matters. A verse that was on my heart for this morning, um, and I thought it was a really strange one uh, until about now. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 16. Um, and here is this, this parable uh, about a rich man who hears about one of his managers uh, who's being really irresponsible. 
So, so the rich man, you know, he's got everything. He's got all of his holdings, all of his, you know, accumulated wealth and all that. And he's got a guy that kind of helps him with the work. And this guy who is, um, well, let's just read it. Verse 2, so he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Uh, and so the, the guy's like, okay, he caught me. I've been cheating, I've been embezzling, I've been stealing. And so verse 3, the ma manager says to himself, what will I do since my master is going to fire me, essentially? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. In other words, I don't want to go find another job. I'm getting fired for being dishonest, but I don't want to work. So, in verse 4, he has this idea. I'll know what I'll do so that when I'm fired, essentially, people will welcome me into their homes. So he goes and he reaches out to each of his master's debtor, asking, how much do you owe my master? First one said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your invoice, sit down quickly, and write 50. In other words, whatever your bill is, you owe $10,000, just quickly kind of write $5,000. So in other words, like he was giving away $5,000 of his master's money that doesn't belong to him in order to make a friend with this person. He goes to the next person and the next person and, and again telling them to basically cut this bill in half. Then in verse 8, this is where this passage gets really weird, and I'm like, why is this on Easter? Verse 8, it says, The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. Like, that's really weird, right? You have an employee who's stealing from you, and you tell him, I'm going to fire you, and on his last day, he steals even more. And then the owner is sitting here saying, wow, that guy's smart. Right? Like, it's really weird. It's like, why is this passage in there? Uh, until it says here, he prays because he asks it truly, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. The reason he was going to this, this servant that stole from him and said he's smart is because this man acted according to his beliefs. He believed that it was good to steal the money because he didn't work, want to work. And so he did everything he could within his own power in order to, to set up the end of his life, in, in order not to have to work, in order to have friends, in, in order to kind of set up a little account for himself to be able to, to retire on. And if you don't believe in morals, that's a smart plan right? To be able to live off somebody else's money if you don't believe in right and wrong. Smart plan. And what he's saying here, the point of this parable that Jesus is making is that people who don't believe in God are smarter about the way they live their life than Christians who do believe in God are. Because if people don't believe in God, they don't have to live as though God exists. And so therefore, what makes most sense for them is to try and make the most of the life here and now. Because who knows when they're going to die. And, and so let's try and enjoy some things. Let's have some hobbies like 
Let's focus on this life. And what Jesus is saying is they do a better job than that than us Christians who believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. More than that, was resurrected to give us a new life empowered by the Spirit that's anchored in eternity, empowered by the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians 2 tells us. And yet we live in a way that almost mirrors the way people live in the world. This is the point of, I think, of Resurrection Sunday this year. We're here because we believed it happened. We believed he died for us. We believe that he gave us a, a new life. That we're something completely different. It's a gift given to us that, that we could never have earned. What do we do with it? Because it can't just be a routine a tradition, a ritual of coming to Easter every year or just Sunday to Sunday and saying, I believe. Because there was people in Luke that heard the teaching in the streets and ate and drank in Jesus' presence, but not with him. The question is, not only do you believe in Jesus, but is he your Lord? Because that's what ultimately matters. I want to invite the worship team to come forward for this morning. And I just want to take a moment before we continue on um, in song and, and singing because uh, of the weight of the importance of what this message actually means. Um, I just want to ask everybody to kind of close your eyes. Um, and if you're here today, and as you're listening to this, um, you're either hearing this for the first time and realizing that there can be forgiveness for sins that frees you from the brokenness of this world and gives you a hope that this world can never offer, or you're sitting here this morning and realizing, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe he died for my sins, but I never made him Lord. I never fully submitted to him. Committed my life to him. His priorities are my priorities. I'll do what he wants me to do, and I won't do what he says not to. If you're here this morning, and you're at a point where you're saying, I need that, I want that. I choose for him to be my Lord and Savior. I just want to invite you to raise your hand where you're sitting this morning. Okay. Father, we come before you and uh, we thank you for the truth, for the truth of all existence that you spoke all things into existence, all things into reality, that you love us so much that you would design such a wonderful world for us to live in. Even though they're suffering temporarily, we thank you that your rescue plan was to come and accomplish what we could not do within our own strength. And so Lord, I pray that you help us to truly appreciate that the full weight of what you did for us, as well as the full gift that you have given to us in new life. 
I pray that you help us to fully submit to you as Lord in all of our steps and all of our actions so that we can stand in rejoicing with you when you drink of the cup again and we drink in your presence with you. Thank you for this free gift. Help us to be a light to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.